rise from the dead and give us life in his name. We praise you for this gift and we thank you that the Spirit of God is present with us in the hearts of the redeemed and pray now that by his ministration of teaching and instruction that you will use this time together in the word and that you would work uniquely through it in our lives to sanctify, to bless and encourage and convict and challenge your people. For those who are separated from Christ, we pray, Father, that you would draw them to saving faith, that you would even take the, the warning of the passage that is before us and allow it to take root. Open our eyes to the truth. We labor in vain without your blessing upon this time and pray that the word would do its work in our souls. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. God is a jealous God. In fact, God was, is, and will forever be the most jealous being in the universe. It's a hard concept for us to swallow because nearly every experience that we have and what we ever will have of jealousy in this world is sinful and ugly. We experience jealousy as resentment of someone's success, their well-being, their status, or something that they own. Our jealousy is fueled by a discontent, by rivalry, selfish ambition, lusting for what someone else has. But God is infinitely complete. So he is incapable by nature of wanting anything that he lacks. Nothing can make him happier or more content because nothing of the sort exists. He is complete in himself. So God's holy jealousy is reserved then for his glory as the infinite and complete God that he truly is. God's jealousy is inflamed then when people seek their joy in false gods that can never satisfy. Imagine a a young father of five precious children. He's a loving dad, devoted to his family, and one day the kids are playing in the yard and he recognizes that their voices have kind of gone silent. He's somewhat concerned and he heads outside through a side door of the house and he comes up from behind a cargo van that's parked on the street. And as he approaches, he finds a burly, unkept man handing candy to his children. And he hears the strangest things just as he walks up. The man tells the kids that he's a better father than they have ever known. If they will just get in the van with him, he will be a better father to them than they could possibly imagine. Now what does this devoted father do? How does he respond in that moment? What would we think if he sauntered up to the man and said, hey kids, I'm I'm just going to go mow the lawn now. Uh, I'll I'll check on you in an hour or so as you chat with this nice man. Is that what he's going to say? What if if he said something like, well kids, what do you think? Uh, 
don't let me interfere, decide what's best for you. He may actually be a better father than, than me, I'm really not sure. I mean, it is, it's just foolishness, isn't it? What he would do is immediately be righteously jealous. I am your father, this man is an imposter, and he will do whatever is necessary to remove that man. The truth that he is their dad for their ultimate good will fuel this intense jealousy and it will fuel action to to insist on what is true. Well, God is jealous that we see Him as God. That we love Him with all of our hearts. That we turn away from every false God that seeks to take His place in our hearts, in our affections, in our sanctification. God is right and good to respond in jealous anger when we seek happiness and when we seek wisdom in the false gods of this world. We must know this about God and calibrate our lives to this reality. And this lesson that is before us here, it's it's on full display in this narrative that survives from the reign of King Ahaziah, the son of Ahab. Ahaziah was a godless king who followed his father in hot pursuit of the sensual worship of Baal. Ahaziah achieves this infamous status in a very short period of time, at least as far as his kingly rule. Notice 1 Kings chapter 22 and verse 51. Ahaziah the son of Ahab began to reign over Israel and Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat king of Judah, and he reigned two years over Israel. He did what was evil. Just put this together. Two years... And here's the conclusion after less than 24 months. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, who set up those two places of idolatrous worship at the very beginning of this whole project of Israel separating from Judah. In verse 53, he served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. Fittingly then, as we come to 2 Kings chapter 1, and the books obviously were once uh, singular, they just moved right in. It says, after the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Moab had been under Israel's control since King David, so this is a humiliating loss. And the moral rot in the kingdom is beginning to crumble the kingdom, is the idea of verse 1. But we'll focus here on verses 2 and following as the only narrative that we have on the life of Ahaziah, the king of Israel. But in a very short period of time, he establishes himself as the offspring of of Ahab and Jezebel, one who is given himself to the pursuit of sensual pleasures according to Baal's worship. 
In the first movement of this narrative, we see that Elijah sends a message of doom against King Ahaz because of his sin. Verse 2 of 2 of Kings 1. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria, and he lay sick. Uh, it was common to construct second-story rooms on top of a flat-roofed lower level in a palace such as the king's, likely looking over uh, onto the pavement below uh, from this second story, and there would be a, a railing that had wooden lattice work that served two purposes. One, it kept people from falling off and falling down to the pavement below, but the lattice work also allowed you to kind of live your life on that second story and not be seen. It blocked the sight lines from, from below in the courtyard. So whether he leaned on the railing, they were known to not be very strong. They were kind of fancy, decorative uh, wood lattice works, whether he leaned on that or tripped into it, in some way it broke through and he goes splat on the ground below. He, I guess it was a Humpty Dumpty had a great fall moment <laughs> in this spot, but Ahaziah's mangled body was scraped off the pavement. It was a bad enough fall that he's going to die from it, and he's gingerly placed on his bed, and there he lay sick. That Hebrew word can be translated wounded. It's probably the case, but perhaps infection had set in and he was really sick as well. In any event, Ahaziah was in really bad shape, and he's worrying that all the king's horses and all the king's men are not going to put Humpty together again, and it really bothers him. So verse 2 he sent messengers telling them, go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. Ekron was one of those Philistine uh, cities to the far north of the Philistine area that's shaded kind of in the pink here down on the lower uh, left area of this map. So from Samaria there, where the capital is set up, where his palace is, where he's had this injury and he lays uh, sick, he sends down to Ekron to hear from Baal whether or not he will live. This was a major center for the worship of Baal and a place where many pagans sought healing. So Ahaziah dispatches messengers to seek some oracle there. Will I live? Will I recover from this situation? And this decision reveals what? It reveals where his heart is. It reveals the idolatry of his heart. This is the God that he loved, the God that he trusted, and it's not Yahweh. There's a great irony here. Where, where have you heard of Ekron before? Where have you heard of this city? If we go back into 1 Samuel chapter 6, this is the Philistine city that received the Ark of the Covenant that was stolen from Israel. It broke out in some sort of tumor, some sort of great disease. And this is a city that they sent it back to Israel. Get this Ark of the Covenant out of here. It's this very city now that a king of Israel is going to seeking wisdom. Seeking knowledge of the future. Ahaziah certainly knew the history of the Ark of the Covenant. But so in love was he with the sensual worship of Baal that he sends there to find a God who knows the future. 
Well, there's only one God who knows the future, and he doesn't look or smell anything like Beelzebub. Verse 3. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now notice this phrase, is it because there's no God in Israel? It's central to this narrative. It's found three times in this single narrative, and so we need to mark it well. But this is God's jealousy on display. You are running to a God who does not exist to find out what the future holds. I alone am God. I alone know the end from the beginning Ahaziah's sin so provokes God's jealousy, he issues this judgment against the king. Ahaziah, you are young. You think you have got years ahead of you to live in your sensuality as the king, to use your resources and live in this palace to do what you want to do. I am telling you, you're going to die. You will not recover. That's verse 4. The judgment of the Lord is that you shall not come down from the bed on which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. That is, he journeyed to intercept the messengers and deliver God's message to the king. So the king's messengers are making their way westward, and then they're planning to go southward along the path, and they encounter this rough-clad man who stops them. And weirdly knows what they're doing, where they're going, and why they're going with the message. I guarantee you, I could be wrong, this is conjecture, but I guarantee you the king whispered these orders to the messengers. Or he talked about it in the privacy of his bedroom. Kings did not let other people know they were sick. That was an invitation to invasion. That was an invitation to some pretender to the throne to take advantage of the king's illness. Now, undoubtedly word had got around and the like, but that would have been kept very private. This man standing in the road knows who we are, where we're going with the message that's probably pretty secret at this point. Nothing in the text indicates that they know who Elijah is. But there is something, it would be so interesting to go back to this moment, maybe someday we will. There was something in the authority of his voice, in the assurance of his message, that led them to abort their mission and return to Samaria immediately. This man they were utterly convinced, knew the answer that the king sought. No reason to travel all the way to Ekron. Verse 5, So the messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? It's a like 90-mile round trip to this city in Philistia. Uh, you're here way too early. What happened? And he's probably asking them, uh, did something happen to stop you or do I need to be calling the executioner to take you guys out for failing on the mission on which I sent you? And kings would do that very kind of thing. Verse 6, 
They said to him, there came a man to meet us and said to us, go back to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. They repeat Elijah's rebuke. Is there no God in Israel? Is there no God from which to seek truth about the future? You will die. There's the truth you seek. Ahaziah had rejected God to find wisdom in a false God, and God says enough. Verse 7, And he said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? Ahaziah, he's figuring this out on the fly, isn't he? He knows what's coming. They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist, and he said, It's Elijah the Tishbite. That says a lot. He knows who Elijah is. He knows what he looks like. He knows how he operates. And he knows that he's a prophet of God. This garment of hair had just been an animal skin. It would have been a rough type of clothing, very unrefined. It would have been uh, cheaper to be clothed this way. And the, the belt of leather, I mean, we'd, many of us wear leather belts. That's kind of a good thing. But that was cheap for them. That was, that was rugged, rough uh, you, you wanted to have a cotton belt, be very decorative around your waist and something that had that taken time to, to make and was comfortable. A leather belt wasn't comfortable. None of this is comfortable. This is that weird guy from Gilead who's shown up again. Well, this all roused Ahaziah enough to issue orders for Elijah's capture. And the scene shifts now to a whole different attempt, not simply to find out truth in Ekron, but rather to capture Elijah. Verse 9, Then the king sent to him a captain of fifty men with his fifty, and he went up to Elijah who was sitting on the top of the hill and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of fifty, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. On the top of a hill, uh, we, we can't make much of this. We don't really know where he's at, but he's apparently living on the top of what the Hebrew actually says, the mount. And since there's no qualification of the mount within the context of Elijah's life, that would be Mount Sinai. Well, we can rule that out. That's way out of the area. Or Mount Carmel. And it's very likely that we've come full circle from the moment on Mount Carmel where the uh, prophets of Baal were, were slaughtered and the fire came down and consumed the sacrifice of Elijah. He's probably living in that area on some hilltop of that range of mountains. And it seems then that uh, they know where he is. And he says, if, if, if I am a man of God, I think we have to rightly nuance that, uh, if I am in fact God's prophet... Well, what should they do if he's in fact God's prophet? They should not be doing what the king is saying, but doing what the king, capital K, is saying. 
in identifying with this Elijah, Elijah will take direction from you because you speak for God. So he says, so if I'm a man of God, obeying the king, you imagine you are in a place of authority and power, but as God's prophet, I am actually in a place of authority and power here. So contest number two. If I am the prophet of God, you are just probably politely saying that I am, but do not believe. Let fire come down and consume you. And the next thing we know, there's a smoldering pit where they were standing. These guys were now history. Ahab's false prophets lost a major contest on Mount Carmel, and God again answers by fire. And these men were the sacrifice. Fire fell and a smoldering burn pit bore silent witness to the loss of 51 of Ahaziah's soldiers. Now God was, has every right to snuff out their lives with no questions asked. But these troops ordered God's prophet to bow to the authority of King Ahaziah. They were effectively ordering Elijah's king, Yahweh, to bow to the will of their king, Ahaziah. And so, rightly so, Elijah says, let's prove it. If I am a prophet of God, if you should be listening to me, not me listening to you, then let fire come down and judgment falls. And they were history. A second attempt takes place in verse 11. Again, the king sent to him another captain of 50 men with his 50. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. You know, sin is never rational, is it? It always corrupts the reason. Ahaziah is so delusional, he imagines sending 50 more soldiers will shift the balance of power somehow. It's a fool's errand, but off they go. Ahaziah apparently expected these 50 soldiers to actually return with Elijah in shackles. All that returns is word of another smoldering pile of destruction. Verse 12, but Elijah answered them, if I am a man of God... Let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. The irrationality just continues on. Verse 13. And the king sent the captain of the third fifty with his fifty, and the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him. O man of God, please Let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of 50 men with their 50. Uh, We know this history. We've been told. We're here in their place. But now let my life be precious in your sight. O man of God, Please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. You're in charge here. The king that you serve is superior to the king whose will I am fulfilling here. He pleads for mercy. 
So ironically, this captain in his own heart did not come to capture Elijah, but to bow before him. This captain did not obey the order of his king ultimately, and he fell before his 50 soldiers on his knees to submit to Elijah's king. And his life was spared. Verse 14. Elijah then delivers the message of judgment against the king. In the first point, he sends a message of doom against the king, but now he delivers this message of judgment against the king. Verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king. It's a little unnerving to set out with 50 soldiers, all who have swords and spears or whatever they had. And to know that anywhere along the line they could turn on you and and take you out. The angel of the Lord says, this captain will not kill you. Go with him. I'll watch over you. So Elijah journeys with these soldiers to Ahaziah's palace in Samaria where Elijah delivers the message that he sent that he earlier sent to the king's envoys. Verse 16. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord. So Elijah now stands before Ahaziah. Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Is it because there is no God in Israel? The third use of this phrase. This is the significant key. There is only one true and living God who can heal. And only this God knows the future. For He has written the script. And that script says that Ahaziah will remain bedridden until the day of his death languishing in pain. Now remember last week we mentioned these prophecies of judgment come with an unstated qualifier. And that unstated qualifier is who knows what God may do in His mercy if you repent. Here's the judgment that God pronounces, but there's always that unstated uncertainty in the good sense of the word. If we repent... This may not be the outcome. There is no repentance in Ahaziah's heart. It was stone cold toward God. We know there are people who reject God. It's clear that they're rejecting God. It's clear that they're not living for Him. But they strangely announce that they are trusting in the Gospel. It makes it a little complicated. But then we know other people who are not living as believers, they have rejected the truth of God and they make no claim to the gospel. In parallel sense, at an earlier day, that's Ahaziah. He has no time for God, no place for God. His heart is stone cold. He will face his fate and he will die. And that's verses 17 and 18. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, two Jehorams. 
king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son, and the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And they are very unimpressive chronicles. A man who simply rejected the Lord, suffered the consequences, and God using the opportunity to demonstrate his jealousy. Is it because there's no God in Israel? As we reflect on this account, let me say it again. That God is, was, and will forever be the most jealous being in the universe. We find our deepest satisfaction, our ultimate joy, we find the path to spiritual prosperity and eternal rest in God alone. So God is jealous for His glory. He is jealous for our ultimate good. He longs for His children to walk in fellowship with Him. And there is no substitute. Since that good is found in God alone, He is provoked to jealousy when we seek in false gods what He alone can provide, which is everything good. He's provoked to jealousy when we pursue fruitless ways of living in keeping with the wisdom of this world. So our loving Heavenly Father longs for us to find our soul's ultimate delight and fellowship with Him. Now we're in, in this in this endeavor. We're not tempted along Ahaziah's lines, is anybody? I, I really don't think so. I mean, is anybody itching to find a pagan oracle who can tell you how long you're going to live? That's not our battle. That's not. I hope that's not the case. I, there may be some who seek wisdom such as this in horoscopes. Maybe participating in seances. Visiting a palm reader, using tarot cards or that sort of thing. I mean, if that's where you're at, it'd be wise to ask the question, is there not a God in heaven? What are you doing? God alone knows the future, and He's revealed all we need to know about that future in His written word. But that's unlikely, I would say, in this crowd. More likely among us is the temptation to hunt out secret knowledge concerning the future in the predictions and prognostications of the neo-gnostics of the internet. We'll tell you what's going to happen. Is there not a God in heaven? Has he not revealed what we need to know about the future and how to prepare spiritually for whatever he brings into our lives? Perhaps the temptation is not this about the future, but is rather to turn to pornography for satisfaction. Is there no God in heaven? Are you comfortable provoking the jealousy of God who is your soul's ultimate satisfaction? Or maybe you're tempted to turn to money for security. Is there no God in heaven? Is there no God who supplies every need that we have? 
Is our security in times of plenty, in times of want? Is God in heaven when our money is draining away in a bad market? Or along another line, when we encounter deep wounds from the sins of others against us, do we put our dependence on psychologists and therapists to heal the soul in a way that God alone can? Is there no God in heaven? When we seek, suppose, inner healing by heeding the wisdom of counselors who reject the foundational biblical ideas about the nature of man and how we change, and on the basis of that faulty foundation, tell us how to find joy and happiness and recovery in life. Is there no God in heaven? Or when we seek to order the church by appeal to Madison Avenue marketing techniques, is there no God in heaven who will grow his church according to his wisdom and his sovereign purposes? When we seek philosophical moorings for parenting, do we default to the experts who reject God's revelation concerning our children's nature? the proper roles of husbands and wives, and the right exercise of authority. Is there no God in heaven? Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We see as we just start along some of these lines that this is very much about us. We're not seeking pagan oracles to tell us how long we're going to live, but how easy it is for us to go after other gods, to go after wisdom that that conflicts with what God has revealed, and so to draw out of the heart of God, is there no God in heaven? There is a God in heaven. He is the answer to our every need. And we have to rightly nuance all that I've said, read it in the best light. The Bible doesn't tell us how to make a good piece of toast. It doesn't tell us how to change a diaper or wash dishes. It doesn't tell us exactly how to fix that computer that won't work or whether or not to replace the tires on your car. But Eden Baptist Church, there is a God in heaven. He is not weak. He is not a nice addition. He is God alone. And as we bore in a little closer on this narrative, we have to answer, for certainly for some, there's a God in heaven, but He doesn't appear to be very nice. Incinerating a hundred soldiers, I mean, it's a happy story for us, removed so far, but God does that? This text reminds us of the biblical storyline of God's just wrath that will descend in fire on every sin committed by every human being for all of time. We get used to seeing sin go by and not be addressed. 
because of the pervasive mercy of God, but God is also just. And there cannot be a single sin in the history of man or in this universe that will go unpunished. Or God would cease to be God and there would be no God in heaven. The key question is, will that judgment fall on the sinner or on a sacrifice? I don't think this is pointedly the intention of the text. But it is interesting to note that on Mount Carmel, fire fell and consumed a substitute sacrifice, Elijah's. And probably somewhere in the same vicinity, fire now falls on two groups of soldiers on their head. No sacrifice to take their place. And it reminds us of the teaching of of Scripture that judgment will be meted out against every single sin one way or the other. Either we as the sinner bear the weight and the judgment of that sin or that punishment falls on another. And this we know to be the good news of our Savior's substitutionary death. The mercy of God. Those who heed God's call to repent in faith in Christ, crucified and risen. Those who trust in Christ as the sacrificial substitute who died in our stead, paying our penalty. For us, there is mercy. For us, like that third captain, we fall on our knees and we plead to the substitute, take my place. Pay my penalty. I receive in your mercy, your gracious kindness of the greatest commodity in this world outside of God himself, and that is forgiveness. His loving forgiveness. Only the blood of Christ will save. That blood either pleads for you or it pleads against you. And when we see fire fall from heaven in two groups of soldiers, we tend to think in terms of, is God just? And he's saying by that very act, I'm just. I'm a lot more just than this. Not one single sinful thought or word or deed will ever go unpunished. God said to Ahaziah, you will surely die. Not, of all, not all of us will die on a deathbed. Some are taken much more quickly. But it's certainly possible that most of us will lay on a bed as we fill our lungs with our last breath. Then we will exhale. The chest cavity will slump. Our spirit will leave our bodies and we will never breathe another breath in this same world again. In that last moment, you will either die in the loving presence of the one true and living God, the one whose blood speaks for you, or you will die alone to face your eternal future Think of the horror. 
in your own strength and on your own merits. And in that event, be assured that no false gods are going to answer your phone call. They aren't there. And in that moment as you meet the Lord, it will make perfect sense that they never were. Yes, there is a God in heaven. And it is a matter of life and death to know that you are reconciled to Him through the death of and the resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. Yes, there is a God in heaven, and we are to find then, with abandon, our soul's ultimate delight in His love, His grace, His fellowship, His mercy, His future promises to us. We have in what He has revealed and done for us all that pertains to life and godliness. May that be our delight. Praise God. He is in heaven. May the Lord grant us the faith and the power to live as if it were so. Let's pray. We are grateful, Lord, for your kindness to us in granting us accounts such as this. And they're sobering. We see much death and judgment. But they're also a source of thanksgiving and hope for we know where they point. We will face death. One way or another, we will leave this life. But I thank you for the promises that you have left us in Christ and what you have given to us in his name. May we trust it. May we cling to him for saving grace. And may we find in you our soul's delight until eternal days. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.